everybody. I'm Hunk. I'm Lisa. And welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast. What the duck? A podcast most foul, <laughs> but with a W because he's a duck. It's that, a pod. That's, that's the full name of the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for choosing to listen to us talk about Howard the Duck. Who's rad? He is pretty rad. So... This is a very different show than Tighten Up the Defense, just mm-hmm. so you guys know what to expect. For one thing, there's not going to be a synopsis up top. It's going to have a different format, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them, it takes a long time to write a synopsis. It takes away from time with Finley and me. That's true. The other reason is the fact that it doesn't work as well. Yeah. These issues, like, even when Steve Gerber is doing the Defenders and stuff, there's an element of satire to them. But once you get into the Howard the Duck run, it's pure satire. And the synopsis is... Synopses? Synopses. The synopses that I write tend to be more in the realm of satire, whether I intend them to or not. So when you get a satire of a satire, is not so good. I think the best example is... The original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic was a satire of the popular grim and gritty comic books of the time. Sure. Geriatric Jiu-Jitsu gerbils and preteen dirty jean kung fu kangaroos are satires of the satire that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I tried to reread those recently and they are bad. Did you like them when you were a kid though? I think I did. You liked a lot of stuff when you were a kid. Yeah, kids are dumb. They like bad things. <laughs> I think there was this particular hat and vest combo that you were very fond of. <laughs> okay, that was a good look. That was a good look. It was a different time. You wouldn't understand. I was inadvertently cosplaying as Paula Poundstone. I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was a good look. You are so handsome. Well, thank you. So, what we're going to do is follow the adventures of Howard the Duck from his first appearance To his last appearance, probably not to his last appearance because he's still making appearances, but this is going to be a once a month podcast that's going to be just for our Patreon donors to tighten up the defense. And yeah, I think it should be a lot of fun. Lisa and I recorded a while ago the Treasury Size Howard the Duck edition. It was so good. And it was so good that Lisa decided she wanted to read all of the Howard the Duck, and I think this will be a fun thing for us to do together. So what he did was he stopped me and said, wait, Lisa. Don't fulfill your dreams of reading the whole Howard the Duck run. (laughs) Slow it down so that we can get paid, baby. And our liquor budget needs supplementation. It does. (laughs) Otherwise, how would we come up with fun words like supplementation? Without the social and imaginative lubricant of alcohol, such extrapolations would be impossible. Shall we get started? Let's do it. Okay. Howard's first appearance is in a comic called Fear Number 19. On the cover it says Adventures Into Fear, but if you look it up, it is still listed as Fear. I thought people were just being pretentious when they'd be like, oh, you do- he started off in Fear 19. And I was like, don't you mean Adventures Into Fear? But they changed the name of the comic, but they didn't change its official listing, so... So really those people were right. They were right. And pedantic. <laughs> As I'm being now. (laughs) Adventures into Fear, or Fear, if you will, as those of us in the know say, was a comic book that, for this run, stars a character called Man-Thing, which is objectively a very funny name for a comic book character. Are you familiar with Man-Thing at all? Um, no. No, I mean, I like, passingly. Does he remind you of any other comic book characters? I think there's another thing. A thing of swamps? A swamp thing. There is indeed. Yeah. Those two characters debuted within two months of each other. One for Marvel, Man-Thing, and one for DC, Swamp Thing. I call shenanigans. Yeah, it's really weird. There are more coincidences than that. It isn't just that one came out and then the other company ripped it off, because generally you've got a pre-production that takes longer than two months for comic books. So that was already in the can when they started work on Swamp Thing. But the guy who co-wrote the first adventure of Man-Thing is a guy named Jerry Conway, who was roommates with the co-creator of Swamp Thing. Huh. And it gets more than that because the second appearance was written by Len Wein, who was the co-creator of Swamp Thing, the second appearance of Man-Thing. 
So it's like this incestuous swamp man thing? Yeah, pretty much. Also, it's a weird choice of names. Like, neither one of them went with Swamp Man, which seems like the really obvious choice. Well, I like, I mean, like, in terms of aesthetic creepiness, Man-Thing is creepier to me. Like, the well, Cthulhu face is, like, pretty impressive. He's got a dick nose and is named Man-Thing. <laughs> which is, you know, a bit on the nose, as it were. So there's that. This is that. why we need <laughs> alcohol, dear readers. <laughs> oh, I would have noticed that with or without alcohol. But in addition to having similar names and similar appearances, they also have remarkably similar origin stories. Man-Thing is a dude named Ted Salas, who was a scientist who was doing secret experiments for the government with biology and chemicals and shit. And he was betrayed by his lab partner, who was also his lover. God, that's a creepy word. That is a creepy word. Man or woman? Woman. Oh, well, yeah, sorry. 1970s. <laughs> yeah. Um... And she tried to swipe his stuff for criminals that she was spying for, and then they tried to kill him. So he injected himself with the serum and stumbled into the swamp, and the chemicals combined with the vegetation in the swamp and turned him into this mindless creature who is an empath and can sense people's emotions. But f when he senses fear, it fills him with rage and turns his hands into acid. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. Swamp Thing, on the other hand, uh, was a guy named Alec Holland. In the first appearance, he was Alex Olson, but then he changed it. He was a scientist who was doing some experimentation with biology and chemicals with shit in a swamp. I think for the government. His lab partner betrayed him, but they weren't lovers. Man he or woman? Uh, man. Okay. If it was a woman, they would have been lovers. <laughs> Alec Holland is quite the ladies' man. <laughs> but he tumbles into the swamp and injects himself with a serum and turns into half vegetation, half man, and climbs out of the swamp. Can he talk? Swamp Thing can, Man Thing can't. Okay, gotcha. And what are Swamp Thing's powers? Ah, uh, big made out of vegetables. Okay, so like very healthy? Yeah, totally, totally full of beta carotene. <laughs> yeah, he's got that good leafy green, high in iron. That's okay. another of his powers. So very fibrous. Yes. Okay, yes. gotcha. Uh, but basically shambling mound of vegetables and can shrink and grow and you can't cut him in half or anything. Oh. Pretty similar to Man-Thing in that regard. Okay. The reason why neither company, I think, sued the other over having such incredibly similar characters that debuted within a couple of months of each other is that they were both ripping off a character from the 40s that was called The Heap, who was almost identical. And The Heap was ripping off a Theodore Sturgeon You've read some of his stuff. Oh, your favorite. He's one of my favorite writers. But they were ripping off a short story of his called It, which was about a man who died in the swamp and then came out of the swamp, half vegetable, half man, and killed people. Wait, so before, when people ripped off other people, like nobody sued? No, it was the 40s. <laughs> it was before there were laws. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that, but okay. But yeah, what's also kind of interesting is a few months before Swamp Thing and Man Thing debuted, the company that published The Heap tried to do a revival of him and it didn't work out. But the editor of Marvel at the time, Roy Thomas, was a big fan of The Heap. So probably not a coincidence that this character got the green light. It's pretty cool. Honestly, like having someone, and I, I don't really, I didn't know anything about the character before reading it, but having someone who was this silent, giant, weird looking dude was a really interesting I don't know, entrance into this world. It's a weird way of going about it, and it's particularly well-suited, I think, to Steve Gerber's writing. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because he loves to introduce point-of-entry characters with varying levels of effectiveness. And the Defenders, he kept trying to do it. Uh, I think originally Nighthawk, he had be kind of that character, and that didn't really work. And then he brought in Jack Norris as that kind of character. With Man-Thing, he ends up surrounding Man-Thing with a cast of characters who all react to him, even though... Man-Thing is supposed to be the main character. So he gets like just a ton of every men to just kind of pile on. And it's pretty cool. We'll see a little bit more of it because at least at first, Howard the Duck and Man-Thing are kind of intertwined. Oh, so. cool. I really liked the character and his face at first put me off because mm -hmm, it is so alien looking. But now that you realize that it's a dick. I'm like real into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we get into the comic book Let's itself? Let's do it. Okay. It's so pretty. It is pretty. The cover is Man-Thing whooping it up against a red-haired barbarian warrior. And there's a lady who's crouched down in a bikini. That barbarian dude has a flaming sword. And they're having a fight on some kind of crumbling stairs. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, but pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then we open it up. 
And honestly, the opening sequence is probably some of my favorite of this comic. Yeah, it's extremely good. Reality. Since the dawn of time, man has sought to unravel its fabric, examine the weave, discover its essence. Reality. Plato found it in the shadowy confines of a cave, Descartes in a syllogism, cognito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. They blew it. Both of them. (laughs) Reality. It is here. On this blood-red plain, neath this verdant sky, among these stones, surely sculpted by a somnambulant lunatic. Reality. Aye, it is here, and the macabre man-thing is about to meet it. Head on. We also get the list of the creative staff on that team. So it is written by Steve Gerber, drawed by Val Mayerick, inked by Sal Trapini, lettered by Art Simak, colored by Stang. Or Stan G. I thought it was Stang and I was super excited. (laughs) That's probably Stan G. And edited by Roy Thomas. Just a little interesting note, Val Mayerick, he's the initial artist on Howard the Duck. He does a lot of the early art on it. And I mentioned in the treasury that we covered that Howard the Duck reminds me a lot of Harvey Picard from American Splendor. Yeah. Val Mayerick was also one of the artists that worked on American Splendor. Cool. So there's just that little connection there, which I think is fun. That is really neat. Then we open it up and we see that there is this cataclysmic battle going on with various anachronisms from the past and future meeting in this mosaic desert type area that looks like it's out of a Roadrunner and Coyote cartoon. It's kind of like DC's Legends of Tomorrow. (laughs) A little bit. The first two seasons of that show are so bad. And then the third season is actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um... (laughs) But you get army guys with tanks, and you get barbarian warriors, and you get biplanes and spaceships. Basically, what you get is some of every genre of comic book other than superheroes that was pretty popular at the time. Huh, that's interesting to think of. Yeah, and I think that is so that Gerber gets a free hand to try satirizing everybody. Well, this is actually, like, some of my favorite of the entire comic book. The whole spread is basically all of these anachronisms and all of these genres clashing and Man-Thing kind of being the silent observer in the foreground, which is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is, it's just so meta to me, you know, and that's yeah. that's what he does so well, right? A mindscape, a world that transcends existence, a world of pure imagination. And if that is what it is, who, whose imagination is at work here and why? Uh, Steve, it's yours. Actually, it's also yours as the reader. That is the great thing. And that's what I loved about Howard the Duck when we read it. On the next page, he kind of just like, you know, hits you over the head with it a little bit more. Right. But when I first read this, I was like, yes, this is actually all of us interacting. It's the art. It's, you know, the writing. But it's also me. Like, I'm definitely part of the story. And it's just so cool to have somebody be so aware of what they're writing while they're writing it. I agree. That's a really interesting technique, and it plays into one of the things that Gerber does really well. And this whole issue, I think, plays into the fact that he was big into existentialism. Oh, totally. um, And, like, apparently annoyed everybody by talking about Camus all the time. (laughs) And I'm assuming he's a little absurdist as well. A little bit. One of the things that I found out recently that absolutely surprised me is that he kind of falls into the Frank Zappa category of you would assume that he was pretty heavy into psychedelics, but he was fairly straight edge, actually just did not enjoy mind-altering substances and didn't use them, but still came up with super weird shit that appealed to people who were using mind-altering substances. Honestly, maybe that his mind was so out there as it was, and he was like, I live there, man. Fair enough. (laughs) I don't need to see that shit. (laughs) Yeah, but there's biplanes fighting weird oblong spaceships, and he says that even Hugo... Oh, yeah, who is that? Hugo... Gernsbeck. Gernsbeck. Did you look it up? Yeah, I did. He was a very early science fiction pioneer. He, he, along with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, is sometimes called the father of science fiction. He was the first person to publish a science fiction magazine that was called Amazing Stories. Oh, right, 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 right. And the covers of it don't look that dissimilar to some of these pictures that are being shown of these weird oblong spaceships that by looking at them, you wouldn't think they would be able to fly. And Gerber points that out, too. And then we get more of the battle scene. And from that floating castle that we saw before, this beam of light in this giant drawbridge shoots out of it down to the ground below. Yeah, and then this lady wearing a pretty badass cape and very little else walks down it. 
Mm-hmm. Little metal bikini with... She looks kind of like Shira to me. I don't know if that's at all... A little bit. She's wearing a lot less than Shira. <laughs> yeah, she's wearing basically a metal bra and a metal bikini bottom also that has like Brett the Hitman hearts like wings and skull thing going on on it. And she starts strolling down. She tries to take Man-Thing's hand and lead him away from there. And it introduces her as Jennifer Kale, who is a character who's been showing up in Fear for the past few issues. She was a teenage girl who decided she wanted to be a witch and found her grandfather's book because her grandfather was a cult member of this cult that worshipped ancient Atlantean shit and they're a good cult. Oh, one of those. Yeah, it is weird because it is continually described as a cult, but they are very much the good guys, the cult. It was the 70s. Maybe people thought cults were okay still in some Some, capacities. Some people did. But yeah, she tries to take Man-Thing's hand and get him up to the castle. They know each other from before. Mm-hmm. They had telepathically formed a bond over the book that she stole. And he chased her around and she was all scared. And then he saved her from some bad guys and some demons and shit. Okay. But how, like, was she in a swamp with the book? Yeah. Oh, obviously. Sorry. Sorry. They live in the swamp. <laughs> Everybody's in a swamp. Pretty much. Okay. If you meet somebody in this book, they're probably in a swamp. Except for when they're in a desert or in a jar of peanut butter. But let's move on. <laughs> Speaking of denizens of jars of peanut butter, which we'll get to later, we meet Korek the Barbarian. He's the guy from the cover. Typical looking barbarian dude. Although his hair is very smooth. I would assume barbarians had more like nasty hair. Just because you're a barbarian doesn't mean you can't condition. Okay. I mean, he's a barbarian, not a savage. (laughs) He does live on an alien planet too, so I guess maybe they have different hair. Yeah, I mean, is it from a different plane of reality? Sorry. I, I don't forgot. know. No, plane of reality is correct because there is actually a cogent explanation of this later in the book. Cogent is a very kind word. <laughs> it is like the most cogent thing I've read in a fucking comic yet, okay? <laughs> but being a barbarian, he figures that Jennifer Kale is a sorceress. Barbarians and sorceresses traditionally don't get along. <laughs> yep, oil and water, those guys. Mm-hmm. They do not mix. That's mm-hmm. the thing about oil and water. Oh, thank you. He and his barbarian horde start chasing her and Man-Thing, who is a shambling monster. Traditionally also, not best of friends with barbarians. Shambling monster with a dick nose. Fair enough. Mm Mm-hmm. Starts chasing him up the light bridge, and the light bridge starts disappearing from under him and his barbarian horde. They plummet to the ground, and he says, Zok! Who I guess is the name of the dude who just fell. Their bodies will burst like blood-filled grapes on the rocks below. He's right. He's right, they do. And he's not stoked about that. He doesn't fall off the light bridge. He instead starts chasing up it, rushes at Man-Thing, and rushes through Man-Thing, who he just kind of oozes through, because dude's basically a big pile of sludge. Mm. And he starts attacking Jennifer. Yep, he really gets at her, and she is saying, don't kill me, stay back. She says, like, I'm not a sorceress. Yeah, I just wear this rad-ass bikini. Yeah, I'm just a style sorceress. (laughs) Look at this outfit. It's fabulous. And he's like, you lie, your tongue is as crooked as a hanged man's neck. And in a moment, it will be as bloodless. So he's going to make her tongue bloodless? Oh, maybe? Yeah, because he's cutting off the circulation. (laughs) Are tongues just filled with blood? I mean, I guess they got blood in them. Well, have you ever bitten your tongue? Yeah. Yeah. Blood came out. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, like, bloodless. I mean, it's not like the tongue is just filled with blood. But So he's gonna... Okay, I guess that is still pretty soon. After he cuts off her head, then, like, the blood will all drain out of her tongue. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, his story checks out. (laughs) I'm glad we cleared that up. Comic book done. (laughs) And then she wakes up in her bed. Uh Uh-huh. And she's wearing a very nice nightgown. And she's screaming, don't kill me. Yeah, and she's asking for her grandpa and her brother, Andy. And they rush into the room. The grandpa is sympathetic. Andy, not so much. Andy seems kind of like a selfish dick. Yeah. Yeah, I've never met him before, though. Do you know if he's a selfish dick in general? I think kind of. Yeah, well. Andy's a real man thing's nose. Also, those redheads, you can never trust them. No, they're the worst. (laughs) For listeners at home, Lisa has red hair. One of the things that is a little bit disturbing is in the opening pages, Jennifer was kind of sexualized, I think, in her portrayal. Very skimpy clothing in the metal bikini. And when she's screaming for her grandpa, she seems much younger. And 
there's kind of a disconnect there that I found kind of disconcerting. Well, in general, with her character, I found it kind of odd that she... And I don't know if this will shift, or maybe it's something that I missed from not having read the earlier pieces, but I felt like she was kind of depicted as this person who was on the cusp of coming into power, but she really didn't have any. And, like, as a female character, I think that's kind of weird. Like, I just... I And I don't know if it's a Steve Gerber thing, because I know that you mentioned he has some stuff with women. I mean, I guess she might just be in, like, the Britney Spears bubble of... Not a girl, but not yet a woman. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that she can't have power agency. And she's trying to save Man-Thing, but, like, whenever something threatens her, she just ends up, like, needing rescuing, right? Yeah. I mean, the text of the story is saying that she is trying to gain the powers of a sorceress and and stuff, but you're right. It She doesn't have a ton of agency, and that is not the subtext of it at all. She is very much the damsel in distress throughout this issue, at least. Yeah. I mean, she does She does make the choice to go and become a sorceress later, which is cool. <laughs> but it's just, it's there seems to be something a little weird about her character that I was maybe uh, confused about. Anyway, her grandpa says, you should rest, my love, blah, blah, blah. But his thoughts say... It frightens me, but I think she's right. These are more than dreams. Yet despite my knowledge of the occult phenomena, I'm at a loss to explain what they are. At least this time, she seems to recall some details that may help. So we get the impression that she's had these dreams for a little while now. And the grandfather goes downstairs to ruminate and think about all of his occult knowledge that he has (laughs) being pretty high up in this Atlantean cult. That's good. And he goes downstairs to check on Andy. And Andy's making himself a peanut butter sandwich. Like you do. Grandpa does not approve of Andy making himself a peanut butter sandwich. He's like, no, nah, man, it's way too late. You'll be up all night if you get into that peanut butter. Protein keeps you up. Is that is that what it is? I just assumed it was sugar, I think maybe. it's sugar. I mean, that peanut butter looks pretty unappetizing. Well, it's a jar of Carlin peanut butter. It also looks gray. It also does look a little bit gray. <laughs> I think Carlin might be a reference to, there was an assistant editor there at the time named Mike Carlin. Who I think that is supposed to be a little nod to. I don't know. Very nice. Deep cuts. You know why I married you. <laughs> yep, because of my deep comic book cuts. <laughs> but Andy's kind of a dick and it's just like, gosh, if she keeps screaming, I'm going to have a really hard time sleeping. So I'm just going to eat this peanut butter because I'll be up regardless. And then he leaves the open peanut butter jar and the knife on the table. Because he's a dick. Big mistake. That's how you get ants, Andy. Do you and want ants? The other thing that you get... When you leave an open peanut butter jar on the table. You get Corex. You get Corex, otherwise known as... I have a name for him. Do you have a name for him? Go for it. The Peanut Butter Prince. Oh. (laughs) He is a prince. I forgot that. I thought you were going to say Peanut Butter Barbarian. No, he's the Peanut Butter Prince. And it also is kind of a nod to Adventure Time. Oh, very nice. First, the knife turns itself into a sword. And then the peanut butter turns itself into Korak. And... The narration of this is, I think, my favorite in the book. It is changing, growing larger with each pulsation of its eerie new aura, until the very shape is altered, until it is the innocent butter knife no more. And when it ceases becoming, a Carpathian war sword rests beside the jar of peanut butter? Or is it a jar of man? It's man butter! Oh, no! (laughs) You somehow made it weirder. But yeah, it's this amazing image of the peanut butter just kind of glooping out of the jar and assuming the form of a dude in this like weird Cronenbergian. Oh, it's totally Cronenbergian. Nightmarish image. And it's fucking great. And Korak's pissed off and he runs upstairs saying like, I'm still going to kill that sorceress. Because he knows she's in there. The one thing I wanted to point out about this particular spread. You mean peanut butter? I want, like, a... Can you put a drum? (laughs) (laughs) I'll put a drum roll. Oh, okay, thank you. So the one thing that I wanted to point out, as somebody who doesn't read, like, a ton of old comic books, is the layout here. It really made me pay attention. When there's an action sequence or something, I'm maybe less attentive to layout, less attentive to, you know, how that affects the storytelling. But this was really obvious and was really cool for me to, like, see and notice. The first three panels are the knife kind of slowly transforming into a sword. And then the next three panels are the peanut butter prince slowly transforming into a peanut butter prince. And then the last two on the page are him being himself and then charging up the stairs. But I really loved how the layout and the coloration drew your eye across the sequence and how you can kind of see the formation 
and the finalization in like the end panels. It just it's so thoughtfully done. Sometimes I sometimes I get caught up with reading comic books and I don't pay attention enough to the art, which is really mm-hmm. such a gorgeous component. So it really is just special to have something that really draws my eye. You're right. And the pacing of those panels works really well, too. The first three with the knife turning into the sword, it's a smaller moment and the panels are smaller. The second one with the peanut butter forming into the man, it's another almost mirroring of that sequence. And then the last two are much larger than that. And it makes it more dynamic when he appears as Korak! Mm -hmm. And it's also like action oriented versus the other ones, which are kind of, I mean, things are happening, but it's becoming versus like being. And then you can see how much energy he has charging up those stairs. I don't know. It just like, it drew my eye and maybe go, oh yeah, comics, that's a thing. Uh (laughs) Korak rushes up the stairs draws his sword, and is about to kill Jennifer, but for reals this time. Because he still thinks that she's an evil witch. And Which, to be fair, she is a witch. Yeah, well, she she's wants a to teenager. Be a teenage witch? What's her name? Sabrina? It could be a Sabrina. It could be a teen witch. It could be a The Craft. Oh my gosh. I so think many... she might be a The Craft, Lisa. Oh my gosh. She doesn't have enough eyeliner to be a The Craft. <laughs> my friend Nicole loved that fucking movie. Was she a witch? She did. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told you this story. She did at one point convince me that vampires were real for like three months. <laughs> you believe that vampires were real for three months? <laughs> Not like they'll come. In what way did that affect your day to day? This is an interview about how I thought. No, she convinced me that like vampires were a sp- particular type of training that you could do. And so it was like a mental exercise that you like practiced so you were able to like control candles and like there were different levels of vampire and she was still on like a lower level but she told me all this lore and stuff it was pretty impressive did she believe this no she totally was making it up (laughs) (laughs) like eventually she was like oh yeah lisa that was false but i did learn a lot of like staff moves (laughs) oh well that's important (laughs) with a broomstick handle so you were learning the staff moves to fight vampires or to in hopes of becoming one yourself well vampire was technically like a mystical thing i think Becoming one myself. (laughs) Oh my, that is wonderful. I was eight. You didn't tell me that part. (laughs) I wasn't like 14. I was eight. We just become best friends, okay? You should be better at being a vampire by now, baby. If you've been training since you were eight. How do you know I'm not? We spent a fair amount of time together. I think I would have noticed if you were a vampire. Ooh, unless I'm in your thrall. You are totally in my thrall. Fair enough. <laughs> well, one person who isn't in anyone's thrall is Korak. Yeah, he's he, a peanut butter prince. He is indeed. And he Kool-Aid mans his way through Jennifer's wall and starts yelling that she is a witch and he is going to hack her to bits. She insists that she isn't and he is unconvinced. Her pretenses of madness will not save her. He does break her bed like a good barbarian, but sees that her grandfather and brother are coming in the room and is like, shit, reinforcements. And then he crashes through the window, the only point of egress. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that he just sees three people in weird modern clothes to him and is like, shit, they're probably wizards too. Can't fight all three of them. I'm out. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah, self-preservation. The Kales are kind of flabbergasted by this. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where the peanut butter prince came from. I don't even think they know he's made of peanut butter at this point. Not yet, but I bet there's going to be a severe talking to to Andy Kale by Grandpa Kale saying, hey, this is what peanut butter late at night does to you. It makes you think of princes. This is why you close jars. (laughs) Ants and fucking barbarians. Do you want barbarians? This is how you get barbarians. They're all like, what the hell? Ah!" And then behind them appears an ethnically ambiguous man in a hat. Oh, he's just a white dude. He's Dakeem, the enchanter. So so Dakeem, I was curious, do you think that's like just fantasy white dude name? It's, yeah, it's ancient Atlantean, which of course they're all white. It's a long ago, so they probably had British accents. Oh, gotcha. But yeah, he's from Atlantis. The name of the cult is the the cultus of Zeredna. And Zeredna was his mentor. Mm. She was the sorceress. He was the sorcerer's apprentice. But Dakim is just like sitting cross-legged and floating in the air wearing big purple robes and a pointy wizard hat. Pretty good. Did you say he was the sorcerer's apprentice? I did indeed. That's kind of why he looks like Mickey Mouse. 
He doesn't look like Mickey Mouse. He's dressed not entirely dissimilarly to Mickey Mouse. But other than that, he doesn't look like Mickey Mouse. Readers, you have to check it out. He looks like Mickey Mouse. Lisa, why are you lying to our listeners? This is not a good start to get off to. He does not look like Mickey Mouse. Except in as much as he is a biped. And he's wearing a hat. He tells Jennifer and the other Kales that some big shit's going down. Basically, the swamp that they live in is at a place called the Nexus of Reality. And all of the different types of reality are trying to merge together for reasons. Probably some bad guys doing it. Allow me but a moment, sir. And wait, should I do a British accent? Oh, I shouldn't do a British accent. He's Atlantean, so I think you should do a British accent. It's going to be bad. What are you talking about? Allow me but a moment, sir. (laughs) Allow me but a moment, sir. (laughs) Is that British? You are as good at accents as Corey is. <laughs> go ahead. No, you go. Okay, fine. Allow me but a moment, sir, Why and I'll explain everything. <laughs> Literally everything. The universe. Now, simply stated, the cosmos works thus. On any given world where life is present, now I'm Australian, and every possible <laughs> permutation of reality exists, doesn't it, Van? They exist within the same space, but on different dimensional planes. Indeed. What is reality on any one such plane? Is it merely fantasy or all the others? All is real, all is illusion. And, until recently, all the all was held at a delicate cosmic balance to prevent alternate realities from converging and possibly destroying one another. And now that balance has been disturbed. At the nexus point of the cosmic forces is the swamp, where the man-object dwells. I love that he calls man-thing man-object. Like, that's the one nod to his old timiness in his speech, other than his obviously implied (laughs) British accent, which we both performed flawlessly. (laughs) The problem is that the swamp is being drained. Do you know who has drained the swamp? Demons? No, a developer whose name is F.A. Schist. So subtle. <laughs> fascist. What year was this published? <laughs> I know. A fascist who is draining the swamp. How prescient. 73. <sighs> so the fascist has decided to drain the swamp, and that has caused problems, because now all of the reality is trying to get into one place. And there is this picture of all of the different realities that are converging. There is the barbarian reality. There is the funny talking animals reality. There is the demon reality. And then there's just regular people walking around. Or the 70s reality. There's also the wizard reality. (laughs) Yeah, he's just got his own little corner of it over there. My favorite part of that is the funny animal planet. There is like a millionaire duck in a top hat and spats. And then there is a professorial looking dog who's wearing like a turtleneck and a blazer over it who looks like he is taking out a prostitute dog it totally does i thought it was like a 70s leisure suit guy and a and a 70s uh like club lady oh maybe i just assumed it was a professor hiring a prostitute i guess that says more about me doesn't it (laughs) it does indeed oh well anyway dakim and jennifer decide that if all the realities merge and Everything wasn't everything anymore. The delicate balance of everything being real and imaginary and fantasy all at the same time is disturbed. Then that would suck. So she's got to do something about it. And Akeem is basically like, well, you need to become the sorcerer's apprentice apprentice. So come with me. Those dreams that you were having were in fact a kind of reality. Just a different kind of reality because everything's reality. Because fantasy is reality in the world today. Keeps me hanging in there. It's the only way. She's like, okay, Grandpa, I gotta do this. And he's like, cool, go for it. And then he's like, awesome! I mean, the Dakeem is like, woohoo! Yep, and then they teleport away. With the sound effect, Zot. There's a really good comic book called Zot that's by Scott McCloud. Oh, you do like that one a lot. I do, it's fun. Anyway, Andy's like, why can't I ever save the world? I'm a big snot. Pretty much. And the Grandpa's like, because shut up, that's why. <laughs> then we see that in the swamp, Korok is hacking around, being like, Oh, man, this sucks. I can't find anything. I hate this stupid planet. And he throws his sword, and he just kind of sits down and is just like, what am I going to do? And then Man-Thing lurks up on him. And he just, like, is hanging out with his weird Cthulhu face. 
the barbarian hits him with a sword and hits him again, and nothing seems to penetrate the man-thing. Well, it penetrates him, it just doesn't have any effect. It just kind of sludges him around. Eventually, Quirk gets pretty frustrated with that and decides to do what any barbarian would do and just be like, this is stupid, I give up, and throws his sword over his shoulder. Where maybe, I don't know, it turns back into a peanut butter knife. <laughs> and then probably one of my favorite things that happens in the comic book happens. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Howard the Duck appears! That's right. He just parts some bushes and busts in right when Korek is saying, this shit is weird. I'd rather die than live in a world where everything's weird. What else is there for one whose life has become an absurdity? And suddenly, our duck friend says, Aw, clam up, bud. You don't even know what the meaning of the word. Finding yourself in a world of talking hairless apes, now that's absurdity. Korak responds, Oh no, what new horror is this? It vaguely resembles a duck, but... It's so good. I love his point of entry being right there. It's great. He really just appears out of nowhere and is already 100% Howard the Duck. He springs fully formed from this comic book like Athena from Zeus's head. He's just there and he's fully Howard immediately upon his entry. And it's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Howard to me is very much like commenting on what the, the whole purpose of this is. It's like, this is ridiculous. Let's just do it. Yep. So, so good. Then we see the interior of the floating castle from the opening pages, and we see that Jennifer and Dakeem are hanging out there, and she's starting her training on being a sorceress. When a spaceship busts through the wall. That'll happen. It's a cool, like, 1950s-looking spaceship. Really, all of the spaceships in here are, like, 30s through 50s-looking sci-fi spaceships, which is fun. It's a good nod. You know, it's, like, it's very much showing the roots of where these guys come from, which is kind of neat. The spaceship causes an enormous explosion, and uh, I probably should have mentioned Jennifer is now wearing the same clothes she was in the opening sequence, her weird little metal bikini. And a bunch of American GIs and barbarians bust through the door. The GIs are taking instructions from the barbarians, and they are all reporting to someone called the Overmaster, who we do not see. Quick question about the barbarian here. Yes. I, like, read him as kind of a pirate. He does have an earring. I think that's the main thing you're getting that from. No, he also says, Don't let that trouble you, wench. We'll find him. Or we'll get our heads lobbed off, won't we, you no-good slobbering dogs? I mean, that's like less barbarian speak than pirate speak. But that was just my, uh... Well, if you say it pirate style, it but, is. No, I'm... Wench? Lobbed off? Sl no-good slobbering dogs? I mean, that's like pretty piratey. He's not calling anybody in anything lubber. I think that's how you know for sure it's a pirate. He's dressed like a barbarian. Maybe he is himself is the result of merged realities of pirate and barbarian. Maybe he's a pirate barbarian, though. Because, like, a lot of barbarians were, were pirates, too, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, if I'm correctly remembering the cartoon The Pirates of Darkwater, which I believe was based on historical documents, then yes. Well, I'm also thinking about, like, Visigoths, which I might just... I'm just remembering from Age of Empires, too. Let's move on. Fair enough. <laughs> Cartoons from the 90s and half-remembered video games from the 90s. Let's move on. <laughs> so Jennifer is trapped under some of the rubble, and Dakeem just teleports himself away. What a dick. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Meanwhile, back in the swamp, Korak is now of the opinion that Man-Thing ain't so bad. And he and Howard the Duck and Man-Thing have formed their Fellowship of the Peanut Butter Knife <laughs> and are headed off to the castle. I think that Man-Thing's real trick is that most people just like to hear themselves talk. I think you're right. I listened to a really good interview with Errol Morris recently, the documentary director, and he was saying how the trick to interviewing is to be completely quiet long enough and people will just keep talking to fill the silence and they'll end up saying more revealing things than they intend to. And I think that is kind of Man-Thing's trick too. He would make probably some very good documentaries. <laughs> I think that's a very important part of active listening is letting space happen. Mm. <laughs> I win. <laughs> I let the most space happen. All right. <laughs> anyway, Korak and Howard and Man-Thing all are off to see the wizard. And they hear some screaming and decide to start heading towards the source of it. And no, Korik decides to start heading towards the source of it. Howard's like, this is insane, because he's great. Fair enough. 
They find themselves on a scene where a whole buttload of demons are hanging out at the swamp construction site, using cranes and stuff, and it's just a scene of hellish madness that is going on with construction workers and demons. And then the demons start attacking Man-Thing and decide that they need to kill him so that they can open the gates to the conquest of all. So I guess they're working for this Overmaster too. Man, the Overmaster. Real Taskmaster. Yeah, not a fan. Nope. Seems like a real jerk. Mm-hmm. I like that panel a lot, though, that last panel, with all the demons with their rage faces, and Man-Thing just he has his shoulders back. He just looks like he's ready to take them on. It also mirrors the panel at the very beginning, where you see his back kind of gazing onto this tableau of the worlds colliding and... In his character, it's really interesting because it's also an interesting counterpoint to Howard, but in his character you have the observer reader, mm-hmm. like just somebody who's just kind of available to let it all happen to them. Maybe I'm like making this up, maybe it's just bullshit, but with the Howard character you have somebody who's like more engaged with challenging the text and, and commenting on it, but with him it's just like, oh my gosh, taking it on and taking what it is into himself. Yeah, Howard's kind of an everyman and Man-Thing is like a no-man kind of. He's like just a lens. Yeah, totally. He's a really cool character. I'm excited to read more of his stuff, too. Yeah. Rereading this made me remember how much I like the character Man-Thing and how good these comics are. And how really good Steve Gerber as a writer is kind of from the start. Sometimes. (laughs) I really do like Steve Gerber as a writer. And I like the way he pushed boundaries. And I think outside of the superhero genre is some of my favorite of his stuff. Even though I like superhero stuff. His very first issue was issue 11 of Adventures into Fear. That was the first comic book he ever wrote. And in that, he had some kids saying, that's the guy who hassled us at the head shop. (laughs) And nobody caught it. But I think if he had things like that happening inside a superhero comic book, there was just more oversight because those were the bigger sellers. And working on the fringes of Marvel in like horror and comedy books kind of gave him more free reign to develop into the writer that he became. And I think that was cool. When did he start his Defender stuff? Uh, Mid-70s, so a few years after this. Okay, cool. How old was he? I don't know. Pretty young. He had been working as a used car salesman at Mm. the time and was friends with Roy Thomas and just started writing letters to Roy Thomas saying, I'm dying doing this. (laughs) He kept saying that he could never make it as a used car salesman because he was too honest. (laughs) Also, probably because he wouldn't shut up about Camus. (laughs) It's really not a way to move Chevys. I mean, uh, in Portland. <laughs> Fair enough. Now Portland. Now Back Portland. then it was more lumberjacky. Yeah. Rather than lumberjacky in air quotes. <laughs> but there you have the first appearance of Howard the Duck. Howard didn't show up in it all that much, but once he did show up, as I said, he was Howard from the get-go. I think Gerber has said, too, that when he first conceived of Howard, it he just came to him, like almost in a fugue state. Yeah. Which I think is fun. And honestly, you know, it's such a weird amalgamation of stuff, but that's kind of the point of this whole comic, right? It's just very well thought out. I don't know what the fuck's happening. Everything's happening. It's in our heads. Isn't that great? Let's all enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just, I really like how aware, it's it's like some of my favorite poetry is like very aware that it's a poem and it's working and doing something. And so I really appreciate that about this. I appreciated it about the Treasury edition of The Defenders. It's just, I'm really excited to read more. Yeah, me too. And I'm glad that you are because yeah, this was a lot of fun. Now, we don't have the same categories that we do for Tighten Up the Defense, but we do have some minutiae to cover. You ready to get into it? Sure thing. All right. Well, I'm going to need some minutiae... Juicer. Some minutiae juicer, sure. There's a little white duck sitting in the water, a little white duck. Doing what he What was this issue's tiny piece of bread? The thing that ducks find most delightful. What in this issue delighted you? <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing the category names, by the way. He just wrote them out with what do you find most delightful. But my tiny piece of bread was Howard's appearance. Yeah, I actually had the same thing. He is immediately a breath of fresh air and all of your attention goes to him. And you're like, well, who's this talking duck? But in, like, not a weird way. I just love that he is introduced, and it's just kind of, it makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. the whole world makes sense. The other thing I had written down was the multiple worlds theory that the wizard 
Dakeem explains. I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. That's the first time I've ever <laughs> read something like this in a comic that kind of made sense. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice explanation of the multiverse mm-hmm, theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the most disturbing thing about a duck is his corkscrew penis. <laughs> What was this issue's corkscrew penis? What did you find most disturbing about this issue? Oh. <laughs> you were looking at me with an adorable, adorable, adorable face. It's the only one I have, Lisa. I know, I know. But it's just you're so pleased with your names. <laughs> the corkscrew penis. Honestly, it was Peanut Butter Prince. Midnight snack to murderous barbarian. Fair enough. I went with the uncomfortable over-sexualization of Jennifer. Mm. It was just kind of creepy. Yeah. I think you maybe can see her as younger, because I just saw her as like an early 20s young woman, and that's just what it is. I mean, I would get that. I'm pretty sure just her talking to her grandpa and the fact that it's her and her younger brother, I'm pretty sure from earlier issues, too, she's a teenager. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) So what in this issue made you go, What was the weirdest or most confusing thing that happened in this issue? The pirate barbarian confused me. (laughs) What confused you about her? I was like, is it a pirate? Is it a barbarian? (laughs) Is there more than one genre-bending thing happening right now? So you had the peanut butter barbarian as both your wah and as your corkscrew penis? No, you had the peanut butter barbarian as your wah. Yes, what did you have as your wah? I had the pirate barbarian because I was confused if it was a pirate or a barbarian or if it was like a pirate barbarian and like everything else made sense to me in this world. Right, other than that, it's all laid out very neatly, tied up in a bow, totally, everything in the comic book makes sense, but that barbarian has an earring and says dogs. So what is going on? You're absolutely right. Here's the thing. When you lend yourself to the world, Mm -hmm. when you like get really into a piece of art, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like you follow along. And I just followed along. Except. The pirate fucking barbarian was confusing to me. Fair enough. (laughs) All right. What was your favorite panel? I think we mentioned page 14 where the prince becomes, the peanut butter prince comes into being. Yeah. That layout just made me pay attention and it was so good. I went with the Fellowship of the Peanut Butter Knife, oh, that I'm going to really call it, too. where yeah. it's just the three of them going through the swamp together. And I don't know, the putting the team together montage of any action movie is my favorite part. And seeing the three of them come together and be a team. Did it pluck your heartstrings? It did, but not my feathers. Oh. Because uh, ducks, you know, <laughs> are things. <laughs> what were your favorite words? The beginning. Uh, the reality. Just like bringing attention to like the project that we're all embarking on when we're reading. I really liked that. And particularly the way that it set up this almost pretentious language around it and set it up as four different beats. But in the middle of that, you have the disruption of they both blew it of Plato and Descartes. I liked on page three versus page one, where he's talking about like where we are right now. So like, oh, the mindscape. The mindscape. I thought you meant the reality yeah. part, which we, we read all of. Yeah, it was the first page, the reality part. But on page three, after going through a bit of a sequence about, you know, all these realities clashing, they talk about where you are and what this place is. For me, it really brought attention to what the, the project of the reader, the artist, and the writer are all doing together. And I just, I thought that was so beautiful. And I really love that. That's great. Yeah. You're giving me a whole new appreciation for this. Oh, moment. really? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I love the idea of the collaboration between the artists and the consumer of the art being a a collaboration. I think that's really cool. That's the thing that I love about having read the the other one and this one is like, there are these points of entry and this awareness that that's what everyone's doing. Yeah. And so there's an engagement that I don't necessarily feel all the time when I'm reading a comic book. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. My favorite was the jar of man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to read it again because it cracks me up. A Cathartan war sword rests beside the jar of peanut butter? Or is it a jar of man? I'm going to put that stinger there. I know you are. And that brings us to the end of the episode. What'd you think? It was so fun. I can't wait to read more. I really like Steve Gerber. I'm curious to see how my appreciation of him evolves. I'm sure there are going to be some misses and some hit it out of the parks. So I'm really interested in that. 
I really like Man-Thing, too, and kind of seeing how he has different ways for the reader to engage. Mm-hmm. And also, like, how he's catering to his consumer. I'm sure we're going to have some really good conversations about that as well. I think Gerber more leans into the I refuse to cater to the consumer camp of writing. You read one of his comics with us with the Harmonica of Destiny storyline, which was just a crazy mishmash of stuff, which it's weird to me that that came later because this seems like a much more deftly done reality bending idea than that did. It's more cogent. It has an internal logic that that means that, you know, a pirate barbarian is weird. Yeah. Like. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it it means I think that it, it seems to me as though he just cares more about this than he did about writing Marvel team up maybe. Too. Well and also, you know, he might have been under pressure from deadlines or whatever. There are other extenuating factors that can, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I just said Marvel team up, it was Marvel two in one. Sorry, I mix those up sometimes. Well, thank you for joining us, Lisa. Thank you for having me. It's been a real treat. It's been a real treat for me too. Thank you for listening along listeners. And if you would like to hear the continued adventures of Howard the Duck, this will continue in Man-Thing number one, and that will be coming out within the month, if you would like to hear it. After this one, episodes of What the Duck. A podcast most foul. But with a W, so you know, it's a duck. (laughs) That's the full title. (laughs) And that's the full title is part of the title. Will be exclusively available on our Patreon page for our donors. So thank you for donating, and we will continue with Man Thing number one, where this story picks up. Yay! There's a little white duck sitting in the water, a little white duck doing what he ought he took a bite of a lily pad, flapped his wings, and he said, I'm glad I'm a little white duck sitting in the water. Quack, 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 quack. Hi, everybody. I'm Hub. I'm Lisa. And welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast. I forgot the name. <laughs> <laughs>